for sure we got a little bit of we got a little bit of a head start. We started reading about the law of challah that when you make your first when you make a batch of dough, you have to take off a small piece and put it away, uh, give it to the kohen back in the day in temple times, and today is not given to the kohen; it is burned. So let's read a little bit more about that since we didn't get to all of it yesterday. We did get to yesterday that this is unique in that it's a mitzvah, an agricultural type mitzvah that begins as soon as the Jewish people come into the land of Israel. It doesn't wait those 14 years for conquering the land and dividing and settling the land. It's interesting, this is verse 20, it's interesting that the size, we talked a little bit yesterday, two and two thirds, between two and two third quarts and four and two third quarts, that's the amount, the minimum amount that requires this mitzvah. If you're just making a very small batch of dough, less than two and two thirds quarts, it does not, is not required. And we derived that from verse 20, where it says the first portion of your dough, it doesn't, it says your dough and Rashi interprets that the dough, the amount that you're used to in the desert, which is the mana, the mana was received in the amount of an Omer, which is 43 eggs. So there's some kind of a connection the Torah is making between the, giving of this portion to the coin and the mana. As we mentioned yesterday, this is kind of the, um, the mitzvah that helps us to remember that it all comes from God. While they're in the desert and receiving the mana, they don't need to be reminded that it's coming from God. They see the miraculous nature of it. It's only when they come into the land and they're receiving dough in a, a seemingly natural way, it's harder to remember where that really comes from and hence the mitzvah of Chala. Verse 21, from the first portion of your dough, you shall give a gift to the Lord in all your generations. Rashi comments on the word, you shall give a gift, titnu lahashem, truma. He says that even though, as we learned yesterday, there is no minimum amount, the Torah just says give, but by saying give, give a gift, a truma, it is telling you that it has to be something of significance. And as we learned yesterday, the sages said that it has to be 124th of your dough, or in the case of a baker, a professional doing it for business, 148th. Now the Torah turns to something very different and talks about a sin that is done in error. Now this is very cryptic in a way. It's very vague because it doesn't say which sin was committed. And our sages tell us, Rashi tells us that we're talking about the sin of idolatry. And it's a particular type of error. In other words, it's not just any type, any person making a mistake about idolatry. It is talking about where the Sanhedrin, where the Jewish court makes a mistake. So you will see that in verse 24. If because of the eyes of the congregation, the eyes of the congregation, as she tells us, refers to the Sanhedrin, to the Supreme Court. If they make a mistake when it comes to a, the mitzvah of idolatry and they say, well, doing such and such is not considered idolatry. And it turns out that they were mistaken and it was, in fact, idolatry. And most of the people committed idolatry based on that erroneous ruling of the court. There was a special sacrifice that is brought. This is not brought by all the people who committed the um, mistaken idolatry, but rather is brought on behalf of the entire people. And what is brought 
a par and a bull for an olah, an all-consuming offering, and a goat for a chatat, for a um, a sin offering. And this is brought on behalf of all of the people. So, but we're, it doesn't say the word idolatry anywhere. It's it's conveyed to us in this verse twenty-two, where it says, "If you should err and and, and not fulfill all these commandments." So it refers to all these commandments, but yet it's talking about idolatry. Why? Why is it expressed in this way? As Rashi tells us, when God forbid a person commits idolatry, it's as if they are transgressing all of the mitzvot of Hashem, all of the commandments. So when he says here in verse 22, all these commandments actually referring to idolatry, which is equivalent to all the other commandments. Rashi says something else very interesting in the last few words, which the Lord spoke to Moses. What does the verse mean by that? Rashi tells us something that we know from Jethro is that when God spoke the Ten Commandments, he spoke them all miraculously in a way that they were all said at once. Achas diber lekim. In Psalms, King David says, Achas diber lekim, that God spoke just one statement. And in that were all the ten statements, something that's impossible for the mind to imagine. However, the verse continues, Shtayim zu shamaiti, that we heard two of the commandments. Because God first said them all at once and then said the first two commandments again in a way that we could hear. That all the Jewish people could hear God speaking to Moses and saying, I am the Lord your God. Do not." That's the first commandment. And the second commandment, do not have any idols. That's what the verse means here when it says, which the Lord spoke to Moses. Another hint to the fact that the verse is talking about idolatry, the particular sin of idolatry, which is the mitzvah that we heard ourselves directly from God. The other eight commandments, we heard it as the jumble when we heard all 10 at once, but specifically, we only heard the first two commandments and the rest, the other eight, we asked God, please, we asked Moses, please, we can't handle hearing it directly from God. You be our intermediary to convey the second, the, the last eight commandments. Furthermore, in verse 23, we see that somebody who commits idolatry is, is denying all of the Torah and all of what the prophets would teach in the ensuing years. So that's what it says. Uh, from the day on which the Lord commanded and from then on for all generations. What is it talking about from then on? It's talking about the prophets who would come in future generations, everything that they're teaching, somebody who commits idolatry is defying all of that. So what happens, verse 24 says what happens, sacrifices, as I mentioned. Rashi points to the fact that the last word of verse 24, lechatat, which means as a sin offering, is missing an olive. So lechatat is typically spelled lamed ches tes aleph taf. This is missing an aleph. What does that represent? It represents that usually the sin offering is offered first. And that is to clear out the sin and make way for this all-consuming offering. But in this case, the all-consuming offering comes first. The sin offering comes second. Why? Some of the commentaries explain this is because this sin is not as grave as other sins because the people are relying on the Sanhedrin. Um, and, and because of that, made this mistake. So therefore, the, the guilt is less, and thus the sin offering does not have to be offered first, and it's also written effectively without that aleph. The last verse is a verse you'll recognize from Yom Kippur. We read this on called Nidre night, that through this offering, the 
Jewish people will be forgiven for this erroneous sin. That concludes today's portion. We're going to jump ahead, see if we can get to tomorrow's reading. I think it worked. And the, tomorrow's reading um, talks about three things. First of all, it talks about if an individual makes a sin. And again, this is about about idolatry, even though the verse doesn't spell it out. But this time it's an individual doing it uh, with his own mistake, nothing to do with the Sanhedrin. And the Torah talks about what he should do. He should bring a, um, a goat and, um, as, as a sin offering. And this is different from other sins that are done by accident in which a person has a choice. He could be a, a lamb or a goat. In this case, he has to bring a young goat. And this will atone for him the same for a citizen and for the gear, for the convert. And in verse 30, it talks about if a person does it deliberately. So the, the offerings only are effective and appropriate for someone who did it by mistake. Somebody who does it biyad ramah, high-handedly, then he is blaspheming. It's as if he's blaspheming God. And his punishment is not just to bring an offering, but his life will be, his soul will be cut off from his people. Rashi says, we also derive from here that somebody who blasphemies is also the punishment for that is excision that his soul is cut off from his people. Verse 31, if he does so, he scorns the word of God and violates his commandment. His soul shall be cut off. Rashi comments on the last words of the verse 31, where it says uh, its iniquity is upon it. The iniquity is upon the soul. Rashi derives something positive from there, which is that as long as the sin, the iniquity is upon the soul, that's when it is guilty. However, when a person repents, if he has, if he has repented, then the sin does not remain with him into the next world. Verse 32, now we have a story where there was a person who was desecrating the Shabbat in the desert. Now, Rashi tells us that this happened long ago. It, was, it doesn't happen at this, chronologically, it's not happening here. Rather, it happened when they first entered the desert. And Rashi tells us something that this is you know, bad news about the Jews because it was they only kept one Shabbos. And the second one already, there was somebody who desecrated it. There are other opinions that say Tosafot say that, no, this did happen here and that he intended this person who is gathering wood on Shabbat and breaking the Shabbat had a positive um, reasoning and motivation for doing this. And his reason for doing this was to demonstrate to the people that even though they weren't going into the land of Israel, they might think, oh, all the rules are off. We don't have to keep the Shabbat. We don't have to keep these commandments because that was only for going to the land of Israel. He shows, he demonstrates to the people the consequences of breaking Shabbat. And according to some opinions, it was a general laxity in observance of Shabbat. And so he kind of sacrifices himself so that others will learn the lesson that Shabbat is really important, even though they're not going to be going into the land. I want, we've just a few minutes left. So I want to jump to the last portion of our Parsha, which is the mitzvah of tzitzit. We know the talus that we put on in the synagogue and the tzitzit are the fringes, the strings that come out at the edges, the four corners. But there's also the talit katan. The talit katan is something that um, I would say probably most Orthodox Jews wear every single day, not just when, during prayer, but from when they awake. And Chabad custom and the Kabbalistic custom of Arizal, we wear it even at night. 
So this is called the Talit Katan. The Torah is giving us this uh, commandment here that if you have a four-cornered garment, you have to put fringes on. In other words, not just for prayer necessarily, but if you have a four-cornered garment, you should put fringes upon it. Now, technically, that means if you don't have a four-cornered garment, you do not have to put on, you don't have to have a four-cornered garment then put on tzitzit. However, the tradition tells us that we should get a four-cornered garment with tzitzit on it. For as the Torah tells us, this is a way to remember the mitzvot. Let's look at the verse. Verse 38. Speak to the Jewish people and say to them, and they shall make tzitzit. Rashi says, what is the definition of tzitzit? His first interpretation is that it means like strings, like threads. And uh, he says they hear can also be referred to as, you know, fringes of the head. And his second interpretation is that it comes from the word metzitz minacharakim, which means gazing, to gaze. And as we'll see, a person is supposed to look upon his tzitzit and remember, and thus remember the commandments. The Torah also says that one of these eight strings, it's really four strings that are doubled over, um, so it comes out to eight uh, threads in the end, but one of them, one of the four, should be techelet, should be made out of sky blue or greenish. Uh, Rashi uses the word green, green blue dye that comes from, as Rashi says, from the chilazon, which is a marine creature whose blood is this color of uh, green, greenish blue. Now, Chabad custom and many others is that we do not have this blue wool. And our, our tzitzit have only the white. And the Torah is saying, if you have the blue, you got to put on the blue. If you don't have it, you can still do the mitzvah just without the blue. According to um, Hasidic interpretation, and Chabad Hasidic certainly, the white represents kindness and the blue represents judgment. And therefore, it's explained Kabbalistically, the reason that we lost the blue, well, we the technical reason is, that over time it was it was forgotten which exactly which creature which marine creature is the right one, um, but now even though there are those who uh, claim that they found it and they've identified it and many Jews have started uh, using this this um, this this dye for the for their tzitzit. Nevertheless, the Chabad custom and many others is to continue and wait for Mashiach when we will once again have that. That uh, the Tehelis and the, the explanation in Chabad Chassidus is that the white represents kindness, the blue represents judgment, and today we need all the kindness we can get and lay off of the judgment until Mashiach comes. Verse 39 you'll have the tzitzis and you'll see them and you will remember the mitzvahs of God. How so? And you will not turn, you will not wander. Very interesting. The word Rashi points out that the word for wander in Hebrew, Lotaturu is the same word that is used at the beginning of the Parsha, where it says he sent the spies to go and um, scout out. So it's not really translating it as wander, but to scout or tour. And you shouldn't, so as Rashi says, the, the nature of a person is that the heart and the eyes, they are our spies. They are our scouts. They're looking around and seeing things that leads us to sin. As Rashi says, the eye sees, the heart desires, the body does the sins. And so by looking at the tzitzit, that helps us not to be caught into other things, 
that we see. Now, Rashi, said, Rashi explains later on, um, how is it that the tzitzit remind us of the mitzvot? And it has to do with the gematria of tzitzit. The gematria of the word tzitzit in Hebrew is 600, 90, 10, 90, 10, and 400. And the five knots that are on the tzitzit, plus the eight threads at the end, equals 613, which is the amount of the mitzvot. I'll just conclude that what is the different, what, what is the connection between uh, the mitzvah of tzitzit, which concludes this whole parsha of Shalach, the story of the Maraglim, and also what is the connection to the, the person who, who commits the, the crime of uh, breaking the Shabbat. So connection to idolatry we already mentioned yesterday. So perhaps the explanation is as follows. Again, the spies claimed that it was impossible to live in the land of Israel in a way that you could remain in, in, in a land, any land and material world in a way that you could um, that you could remain righteous. And so the Torah is saying, yes, it is a challenge. It's, ex it's exceeding, yes, it is going to be difficult. However, we have the means to maintain that spiritual consciousness. And that is by, for example, keeping the Shabbat. When we take one day out of the week and we stop making a living and we live, when we remind ourselves who, who is the creator, then yes, even in a land, even in a material world, we're able to maintain our spiritual consciousness. And the same thing with the tzitzit, which is something we have constantly, not just waiting for Shabbat. And of course, the, all the other mitzvot that remind us and keep us on track. So that concludes our Parsha for today. And we will continue on Sunday with Parshas Korach.